0: Hey, it's the NPR Politics Podcast here with a wrap on the 2016 New Hampshire primary.
1: Oh, wow. Thank you, New Hampshire. My goodness.
2: I, uh, I don't know what we'd have done tonight if we'd actually won. I did not do well on Saturday night, so listen to this. That will never happen again.
1: Now on to South Carolina, on to Nevada, on to Super Tuesday. There's so much going to happen. If you don't have a seatbelt, go get one.
0: Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders with decisive victories. Hillary Clinton, Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, not so much. Ohio Governor John Kasich surprise second place buckling his seatbelt. We're going to talk about what happens next, and we're going to do it from our little remote studio here in Manchester, New Hampshire at the Comfort Inn. I'm Tamara Keith, White House correspondent for NPR. I'm Asma Khalid. I cover demographics in the campaign.
2: And not all of us are in the Comfortable Comfort Inn. I'm Domenico (laughs) Montanaro here in the uh, NPR headquarters in Washington, political editor.
0: And we have a special guest here in New Hampshire from New Hampshire
1: Public Radio. Brady, can you introduce yourself? Sure. This is Brady Carlson, reporter and host for New Hampshire Public Radio. Great to be with you.
0: Yeah, and great to have you here. Yes, welcome. Thank you. Welcome to the Comfortable
2: Comfort (laughs) Inn.
0: (laughs) So guys, big takeaways from last night. Let's go around the table. Domenico, the distant table.
2: Yeah, and you know, from my distant perspective here, let's just pause for a second and stop and just realize that Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders won last night. I mean, that is unbelievable if you think about where we were a year ago. If someone said to you, Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders would win New Hampshire, you know, who would take that seriously? But that's what happened. And in resounding fashion.
3: Asma? Uh, I think my big takeaway has got to be Marco Rubio. I know last night, as, as we heard in the little clip there, he and his team are pointing to his Saturday night debate performance, but I think there's something more there. I think there is a vulnerability underneath that debate performance that points to his inexperience, and that's something that I heard from voters. And Brady?
1: I think Domenico's right that there's a lot of people who are surprised at what happened. But on the other hand, this is a very New Hampshire thing to do for all the reputation that the state (laughs) has as a kingmaker. In a lot of ways, it's more a king or queen breaker or at least shaker. Uh, I mean, I think back to 1996 when Pat Buchanan beat Bob Dole, the establishment frontrunner. In 2008, ironically enough, it was Hillary Clinton beating Barack Obama, who looked like he was going to sweep Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina. And so there is this tradition of picking out the insurgent or the anti-establishment candidate and at least trying to lengthen the campaign instead of anointing the frontrunner.
0: I have to say that my takeaway from last night is that the voters I've spoken to, Trump supporters and Bernie Sanders supporters, they want to break stuff. They do not like the system as it is. They feel like it isn't working for them. And they just want to try something new.
2: Yeah. As far as New Hampshire goes, you know, it is one microcosm of the fact that this has been a completely unconventional election. You're seeing it with young voters in particular, not really caring about the rules of the road or who came before, especially if you consider that Bill Clinton was up there days before talking about how this isn't the New Hampshire that would have voted for me. Well, he's right, because a lot of those people who are now supporting Bernie Sanders, you have to think about, it. if you're a sophomore in college, you were in sixth grade or so when Hillary Clinton ran her first presidential campaign in 2008, never mind
1: 1992. And there's been a lot of demographic studies coming out in the last few days that show that the population itself is changing in New Hampshire. It's something like 30 to 35 percent of the people who are eligible to vote in the New Hampshire primary were either not here or weren't old enough to vote in the primary in 2008 when Hillary Clinton last ran. So there's a very big change in who's voting in the New Hampshire primary. Couple that with that anti-establishment tendency, and you see people not only going big for the anti-establishment candidates, but going, as they might say, huge for those (laughs) anti-establishment candidates.
0: (laughs) So as this conversation goes on, we are going to talk a lot. We are going to mention exit polling a lot. Domenico, you've been involved in polling in in past lives. Can you just describe what exit polling is and why we should take it seriously
2: or not? Well, it's always the funny thing uh, on the night of an election when 0% is in and we are projecting (laughs) such and such to be the overwhelming decisive winner. Uh, And people go, how is that possible? Well, part of that is because they have this giant survey, essentially, of people who come out of the polling locations. In Iowa, it was an entrance poll, so it's less reliable because you have people can change their minds during the caucuses. But this is after they went and voted. You have people standing outside talking to every fourth person or so, and they will you know, see how they voted. And they ask them a series of questions. There's a long questionnaire. This is paid for by all the big media organizations. We should say NPR uh, did not pay for this polling information. Um, but a lot of the networks and the Associated Press What they'll do is they take that exit polling information, they'll apply it to their models, and then they will use the information of raw vote that's coming in to see how that matches up. Now, you can look at just last night, and when you look at uh, us being able to say, well, Bernie Sanders won overwhelmingly with young voters. Well, we only know that because of exit polls, and he did win overwhelmingly with young voters in a similar way. Uh, But we wouldn't know that without exit poll information, and that's what it's all based on.
0: All right, on the side. Domenico, other than young people, what do we know about how this race went down.
2: Well, one of the really interesting things is that Hillary Clinton likes to talk about how she'd be the first woman. But as we've reported out on on air, not all women are voting for Hillary Clinton because she's a woman. In fact, last night in New Hampshire, where Bernie Sanders won by 22 points overall, he won women by double digits. And they were more than half of the electorate. And when it comes to a really key issue on trust, people who said that their most important issue was whether or not someone was honest and trustworthy and whether they care about me. Sixty percent of people who went to the polls, of Democrats who went to the polls, said that those were the two biggest issues for them. And Bernie Sanders won those voters overwhelmingly by huge margins. Uh, Hillary Clinton won on whether or not she could be electable or had the right experience. But just about 40 percent said those were key characteristics. So if she's not able to go into Bernie Sanders margins there, uh, it's a difficult thing. And when you think about the emails controversy, it's apparently had some, at least some, effect even on Democrats.
0: Sure, the emails thing is something, but when I talk to voters, they don't talk about the emails. They talk about money in politics. They talk about Wall Street. They talk about, uh, they don't say it, but you know, they're thinking about those speeches she gave to Goldman Sachs and all these private Mm -hmm. companies. There is a very strong resistance. Whether they trust her to fight
2: for their issues. Yeah, Yeah.
0: there's just this really strong resistance to all of the money that's in politics and the system as it is now, and she is playing by those rules, and Bernie Sanders isn't. And they find it very refreshing.
3: So, Dominica, with some of those raw numbers that you were describing, both around women and millennials, I guess my question is that right now we have heard primarily from young people who are white. And when I look at demographic data, the thing that's fascinating about the millennial population and younger is that it is increasingly not white. And so as this race you know, moves to South Carolina and Nevada, right. I mean, do we have any sort of sense of, of where and how this race may shift? Or, or are young voters? You know, sort of across the board, you think, um, in Bernie Sanders' camp at this point?
2: Uh, He's won them overwhelmingly in the last two states. And I think where the real danger zone is here for Hillary Clinton is the strength of support with non white voters. As you talk about the changing demographics within uh, the younger generation, under 30, under 35, under 45 Mm -hmm. even. Hillary Clinton's campaign likes to talk about, well, South Carolina and Nevada are coming up. They're not as white, not as rural as New Hampshire and Iowa. What that's code for is them basically saying, we've got black voters and Hispanic voters locked up. They know who we are. They know who the Clintons are, and they've got them locked up. I think that's probably true of leadership within African-American and Hispanic community, within union leadership, older voters, but not so much among the younger rank and file. And I think we've started to see that over the last couple of days, even as pundits start talking about how you know she's hoping to win over a bigger set of the electorate. You saw Twitter blowing up last night uh, from young black voters who are saying, she doesn't have my vote. I like Bernie.
0: You talk about Twitter blowing up, and today Twitter was blowing up because Ta-Nehisi Coates, who is the African-American writer and influential thinker, uh, he was on Democracy Now!, which is a left-leaning radio program, and he said that he is going to support Bernie Sanders. He isn't endorsing him officially, but he's planning to vote for him. And he's an influential voice. I mean, he is. And I think what's interesting to me is I was in South Carolina
3: hmm, probably like a a few months ago. I think it was in October. And at that point, I was speaking to a number of African-Americans on the ground. I was very hard-pressed to find a Bernie Sanders supporter. But I do think that there's been a shift. One of the young women that I interviewed emailed me some weeks ago to say that she has changed her vote. She was Hillary Clinton met some Bernie Sanders supporters, liked his criminal justice platform, and has decided that she's going to go with Bernie Sanders instead. And I guess I've been watching some tweets from uh, our fellow podcast periodic host, Sam Sanders, who's in <laughs> South Carolina, and he's been saying that there's no reason that Hillary Clinton should presume that she has young black voters unlocked.
1: The other piece of the Democratic coalition that we haven't talked about here, and of course, New Hampshire is not exactly a bellwether when it comes to voters of color, but white working class Democrats went very heavily for Bernie Sanders and in towns like Rochester and Summersworth, which are not the sort of uh, highly educated, better off economically voters that Bernie Sanders was always expected to do well with. The pitches for things like a $15 an hour minimum wage and more union representation seem to really hit home with some of those voters who years ago were leaning toward Hillary Clinton over Barack Obama. So it's interesting to see how these different pieces of the Democratic coalition have been warming to Bernie Sanders as the campaign has been going on.
0: Let's move on to the Republican side of the race, which is arguably even more interesting than the Democratic side. And Donald Trump (laughs) one and one big. Uh, Brady, can you run down the rankings below number one?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely.
0: Okay. Number Uh, one, Donald Trump. Number
1: two, John Kasich, Ohio a very governor, a
0: distant second place. A
1: distant second place, but still yes, a big but, a, win, but
2: still, kind of a win for him. I mean, a big surprise. A big win if he would for him, second place. Yeah.
1: Number three. Number three was Ted Cruz. Number four. Jeb.
2: Exclamation point! <laughs> <laughs> Which means number he's five.
1: staying in. Which means he's gone to South Carolina. As is fifth place. Number five, Marco Rubio.
0: And number six,
1: Chris Christie. Ah, uh,
0: yes. So, uh, Chris Christie, who, um, well. I guess it, went back I to guess New it's, Jersey. Yeah, went back to New Jersey.
1: Well, he never. I mean, Chris Christie had the hardest time of any candidate adjusting to the Donald Trump world. Of the Republican field, I mean, he was supposed to be the brash, tough-talking, no-nonsense <laughs> truth-teller Jersey of the politician. Republican field, and all of a sudden here was a more brash, more tough-talking, more outlandish guy, and so then Chris Christie had to figure out who he was going to be among the Republicans. And can you just tried- just
2: just stop and think about that for a second—that somebody could out braggadocio, uh, you know, Chris Christie. I mean, right?
1: And then Christie had to try and figure out what persona he was going to present to New Hampshire voters. He tried being a sort of policy wonk with the most detailed proposals. He tried being the national security guy who was going to take the fight hardest to ISIS. And he tried being the guy who had the most town halls, which worked until John Kasich overtook him. So he just had a hard time sort of figuring out who he was going to be in this field, and now he's the guy who went home to New Jersey after the New Hampshire primary. But he's
3: also the guy who essentially kind of brought down Marco Rubio in Saturday night's debate. You guys probably remember Saturday night during the GOP debate. How could we forget? Mm
1: -hmm.
3: Marco Rubio sounded a bit like he was on repeat. There was this constant criticism of President Barack Obama that he repeated.
2: And let's dispel once and for all with this fiction that Barack Obama doesn't know what he's doing. He knows exactly what he's doing. Four times. And repeated. He knows exactly what he's doing. He is trying to change this country. And repeated. The facts. Here's the bottom line. This notion that Barack Obama doesn't know what he's doing is just not there true. There it is.
1: He knows exactly what he's doing. There it is. The memorized 25-second speech. Well, that's the, that's there the it reason is, why this
2: campaign is so important. Because I think this notion, I think this is an important point. So
3: this definitely became a vulnerability for Marco Rubio. Um, You know, I I was at an event where the other night people started yelling out, no record, no experience. He was sort of trolled and chased down by a guy dressed up as a robot, and people started calling him... It was the Rubio glitch. Yes. As if, you know, that he he had been stuck on repeat. The CD just got stuck and couldn't co- stop saying the same thing. So, you know, as we heard as the, at the top of the show, he pointed to Saturday night as the explanation for why he didn't perform so well. And he promised his fans and his supporters that that, that wouldn't happen again. But this was a total, you know, change of tune than what we'd been hearing from the Rubio camp. And I... I'm like a little hard-pressed to see that it was just the debate. I think that it's pointing to something underneath, right? It's the vulnerability that he doesn't have the experience that maybe some voters are looking for. Brady?
1: It did happen at the worst possible time because, as we saw from the exit polling data, a large number of Republican voters in particular made up their minds in the final few days of the campaign. So as they were deciding which candidate they were going to go choose... All of a sudden they were presented with not Marco Rubio, the electable choice, the liked by everybody choice, but Marco Rubio, the guy who keeps dispensing with the fiction that Barack Obama doesn't know what he's doing. Over and, and a, over. It and, just didn't work.
2: And a majority of the people in that exit poll also said that the debates mattered. And I think that the, you know these two things tie together because the core of the argument against Marco Rubio from Chris Christie, who wound up pulling him down, was that he's inexperienced. You know, he's too much like Barack Obama. And that's something, like Osma had mentioned, that you can hear on the campaign trail as this underlying theme as the hit against Marco Rubio. And it all crystallized just at the wrong time for him.
0: I want to turn to John Kasich, who had this big, come-from-behind, second-place finish. What does that mean for John Kasich?
1: For John Kasich, it means you got what you wanted in New Hampshire, now what do you do? Kasich really did put all of his eggs into New Hampshire's basket. He said, I'm going to outwork every other candidate here. And he played the role that there's always one Republican who plays the role of the sort of, I'm going to reach out to the unaffiliated voters who can vote in New Hampshire's primary. They can choose which ballot. John Huntsman did it four years ago, and it's been done pretty much every time, but it almost never works unless your name is John McCain. He, he
2: ran He ran such a New Hampshire campaign, by the way, that he called every single voter in Dixville Notch, which voted at <laughs> midnight. Now, there are only five of them. but yeah, This is the- this
0: town that does the midnight vote that gets all the media attention.
2: Right. They're he actually, won in
0: a landslide. There are
2: actually three towns that do it. Millsfield and Hart's location are the other two, and they're kind of annoyed that Dixville Notch gets all the attention. But Dixville Notch gets the attention because they have this streak that they boast of from 1968 that they've predicted every single eventual Republican nominee since 1968. So Kasich won. Trump came in second there. But to the point of the old-fashioned New Hampshire-style campaign that John Kasich ran, he did all of the things that you're supposed to do to win. He can't call every single voter in every uh, Super Tuesday state that's for sure so can
3: we i mean talk a little bit about donald trump's victory i mean this was a huge Huge Uh victory, double digits. uh, You know, I mean, he essentially creamed all the moderates. And we talk about John Kasich running a traditional retail style, New Hampshire style campaign, and he didn't win.
2: You know, Trump did it the Trump way. And like how Bernie Sanders on the Democratic side has had his message really break through, that's what Donald Trump has done on the Republican side. Just a few things from the exit polls that were kind of interesting. It was a broad victory, really, across all demographic groups for Donald Trump. He popped with voters with less than a high school education. And his acceptability factor. We keep talking about Donald Trump's ceiling. He's increased his acceptability factor among Republicans. Just look at this. They asked uh, if Donald Trump, Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio would be the nominee, how satisfied or dissatisfied would you be? And when they looked at Ted Cruz, understandably among Republicans in New Hampshire who are uh, are more mainstream, quote unquote, only 38 percent said that they'd be satisfied with Cruz. 58 percent said they'd be dissatisfied. Donald Trump split. Mm. 48, 49, satisfied versus unsatisfied. And when you think about Donald Trump's message and how he's broken through with that, look at his controversial want to ban Muslims temporarily from coming into the U.S. 66%, two-thirds of Republicans were in support of Donald Trump's call to temporarily ban Muslims, and he got four times as many voters who supported that statement uh, to vote for him. So that message clearly broke through.
3: So, Domenico, though, was it Donald Trump's message or was Donald Trump merely capitalizing on an existing sentiment? I mean, I have spent some time in New <laughs> Hampshire way back in the spring. And, and I'll say, at least on the Muslim issue, I started hearing that from people uh-huh. months and months well, ago before so, Donald Trump but was that's, even in the but race. But that's
2: like the big question on like Donald Trump overall, right? I yeah. mean, it, does he embody conservative values in the way that he's talking about all this stuff or was he just – really kind of touching on some of these touchstones where he's heard a lot of this rhetoric since the Tea Party rise in 2010. And he was able, it's almost like if he conducted focus groups, you would think he focus grouped (laughs) this because he really knows how to touch on all the things that Republican base voters, you know, what fires them up. And he's really channeling that.
1: And he's also done a great job of keeping his name in the if not just the headlines and TV shows, but in the minds of those Republican voters. I mean, yes, Trump hasn't spent compared he's spent comparatively little time compared to like John Kasich or Chris Christie or Carly Fiorina. But he has done his homework in that he would come even two or three years before 2016. He would come every so often just to make sure that people saw that he was here in New Hampshire. He'd do that one event, and then he'd fly right back out. But he would make sure that that got a lot of attention. Ironically, uh, one of the events that he did a couple of years ago was for the New Hampshire Union leader, uh, hmm. the paper that he's been feuding with over the last six <laughs> months of the New Hampshire primary. But Trump would come in and do a very Trump-like retail politics The other thing that's worth pointing out comes back to what you said, Asma, about how Trump creamed the establishment candidates, and candidates, I think, is the operative word, because, I mean, Trump had a double-digit lead over John Kasich, who was in second place, but if you take Kasich, Jeb, Christie, and to some extent, Marco Rubio voters, they would have beaten Trump had they been one candidate. So the question that a lot of political analysts here have been wondering is— If there had been one establishment track candidate for those voters to coalesce around, would that candidate have beaten Donald Trump? And the question now for that lane of the party is... Can they coalesce around one candidate at this point, and, or is Trump going to continue and to which split them? Candidate? Well, the
2: ceiling is really important because we started out saying Donald Trump has the ceiling of about a quarter of Republicans. He can't win with that. you know? And then we said, well, you know, he's got a ceiling of about a third. And now it seems like it's up to 40 percent, maybe 50 percent. You know, now you're starting to get to areas of like what people win with <laughs> <laughs> so it's 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 hard to say what his ceiling is, what his acceptability is. All these things are a choice. If it comes down to Ted Cruz or Donald Trump, we've seen that some of these party leaders would rather go with Donald Trump because Ted Cruz is coming to, would come to Congress or come to the White House with a figurative grenade because he doesn't like the system. He wouldn't want to work with anybody. He wouldn't want to try to govern in a way that uh, you know that they think at least maybe Donald Trump would, I guess. Uh, but when you look at the path to the nomination, unless as Brady was mentioning, the establishment can coalesce around somebody, this at least is going to be a long slog. And, uh, you know, I mean, the people are going to start talking about the possibilities of brokered conventions if it's split up in three, four, five ways.
0: To me, the thing that I take away from all of this is that uh, it did not get less complicated because we made it through Iowa and New Hampshire. (laughs) It seems to have gotten more complicated. Much more. And the only thing we know for sure is that we are not going to get any sleep anytime soon. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that's it for this episode. If you like the show, do us a solid, go to iTunes and rate the show. Uh, Those ratings help other people find the NPR Politics Podcast, uh, which helps us keep doing it. If you want to chat or ask questions, you can find us on Twitter. You can also email us nprpolitics at npr.org. And you can catch our political coverage on your local public radio station as well. I'm Tamara Keith, White House correspondent for NPR. And I'm Asma Khalid. I cover demographics in the campaign.
1: I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. And I'm Brady Carlson of New Hampshire Public Radio.
0: And Brady, thank you so much for joining us. This was a lot of fun. It
1: was great. Thank you for having me.
0: We'll see you all on Friday for our roundup of the rest of the week's political news. And until then, thanks for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast.